This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. some topics lately actually um, i believe last week the the two-part segment was a little bit more in your face than i normally am and we're not going to transition to that type of a of a a voice and tone not on a regular uh regular interval but as is true to my i guess you can call it my ux alter ego of ux uncensored where everything in ux uncensored is pretty much in your face Sometimes we have to do that and the circumstances that we're being subjected to, the things we're experiencing call for that. It's not something that we do on a regular basis. It's not something that we take delight in. It's not, oh, I can't wait to be in somebody's face. That's not it. My love for, for the discipline, my passion for the discipline, my commitment for the discipline my desire to see people be their absolute best, my desire to see people grow. These are the things that are really behind that. Some people like to paint pictures that it's something else, but those people are really just trying to diffuse and minimize and discount what's coming forth because they really don't want to be accountable for it. And they don't, they don't like the fact that it contradicts who they are. It, it unmasks who they are. That's why those types of things happen. But for the purpose of the topic that we're going to introduce today, and I'm not sure if this is going to be a one-week thing, a two-week thing, or a three-week thing. I'm not really sure. I just want to make sure I'm giving complete and, and ample coverage to the topic at hand because I do consider it to be critically important to the discipline and to all of those who do want to be their absolute best out there. I think there are a lot of people who do want to be their absolute best when it comes to user experience. I believe that there are people out there who want to be true to the discipline, even though there are some people out there that are willing to weasel their way. And I mean that literally. They are weaseling their way into UX positions, weaseling their way through the discipline, weaseling their way into jobs. Those kind of people don't want to hear what we're talking about. And you know what? They don't matter to me. From that perspective, this is about people who want to be great. And when I say great, I mean excellent. This is about people who want to be their absolute best. This is about people who are committed to lifelong education, lifelong learning, lifelong growth, lifelong maturation in UX. This is who the podcast is for. There is no political correctness here. There is no no sugarcoating here. Those things are detrimental to excellence when you really take a look at it. So in the light of that, the subject that I want to start covering today, and we'll just keep covering it until we've done. I've got my outlines here. I know what I'm going to talk about. And we're going to cover 
what I refer to as the cycle of UX dysfunction. And I'll explain what I mean by that here going forward. So let's start by laying our foundation here. First, I want you to take a little look at UX history. We've talked about it a few times. I talk about it doing a lot of my talks, uh, but we want to rehash it, especially for those that are listening for the first time or you haven't heard a lot of what we've already done thus far. UX was not called UX from its inception. Matter of fact, in its earlier days, it was what we now know as UX was really referred to as human-computer interaction, different things that made that up. That was HCI or human-computer interaction. In the late 90s, a lot of the early UX-related folks uh, engaging in their, in their careers were information architects. There were also a group of people who started out and they were just referred to as interaction designers. These were the best terms that people could use to describe the work that was being done. Don Norman was the first person to have UX in his title, and he was referred to as a user experience architect when he was working for Apple around 93 to 95, along in there. But UX was by no means a mainstream acronym. It was something nobody was referring to pretty much. Don Norman was ahead of the curve. He saw what was coming. And for the record, and we've talked about this before, what Don Norman, what some of the early practitioners meant when they were looking at UX is actually what is referred to today as CX. It did not limit itself to the digital world. It did not limit itself to websites. And there were no mobile apps yet. Websites just got off the ground most of what they were addressing weren't digital at all. And when I say digital, I'm referring to the internet where you're looking at things through an interface. It was actually the interfaces because when Don Norman first came along, they were working on iPods and, and other things like that. It had nothing to do with, with the things that we address or have addressed for the most part in the world of UX. It was about everything and, and it looked at everything. It was very holistic. When the advent of the internet came along, the shift began to focus on things that were in that arena. And so what became known as UX had more of a digital point of focus than it did uh, or, or than, it, than it did earlier on. Yeah, uh, than, than it did early on. It's important for us to note that. Now, as UX began to grow, and I'll just keep calling it UX because that's what we know it as. Now, as UX began to grow, as things began to shift, people began to grow in, in accordance with that and the focus began to expand and that which we now know as UX research started to grow, it started to evolve and people began to shift and focus on those things. Note that there was no, at least what we know now in the forms we know it, as now, there was no remote usability testing, but there were different types of research that were taking place, such as your guerrilla testing, and people could, could do things through paper prototyping and do first-click testing from that perspective. And there were interviews, and, and there was contextual inquiry, there was ethnography, and I know some people 
feel that we shouldn't use ethnography when it comes to UX. I totally understand that point. I understand what they're getting at. And I know that ethnography really belongs to the world, the world of sociology, uh, people in that, in that arena. But even what we do, when you come into an environment and you just study them and you're not interacting with anybody, you don't have to get to know those people the same way that one might do uh, such a thing in a sociological landscape or in a sociological operation. Uh, so you already know them, but if you're just observing people watching what they work, how they work and, and you're taking notes, it's still ethnography. It's just not as robust, but it's still ethnography. So just so we're clear on that today, but there are a whole ton of different aspects or types of research methods associated with research that are being used. But again, things just began to expand. Interaction design principles began to expand. People were learning things and heuristics were evolving and heuristics were being established. So you have this time where there's a lot of growth. There's a lot of, a lot of, of, of thought leadership that's coming forth. And so things are really evolving and things are, are really happening well. And people are respecting the thought leadership that's coming forth and people are learning things. And there's a lot of knowledge sharing that's taking place. Just fantastic. And people are learning. Note, if you will, in the beginning days of UX, there's no confusion about terminology. There's no dog eat dog there's no lack of appreciation for the people who were pioneering in this world that we now know as UX. Those things all came later. There were no formal educational channels. You could not get a degree in UX. There was no such thing as a UX boot camp. There were very little things that were taking place in MOOCs, and MOOCs were just becoming uh, more of a thing. They were They were sort of of coming into their own as a reference point, a resource when it comes to education. So in those early days of UX, everything was pretty much informal. You might be able to get a degree in HCI, but if you did, there wasn't a lot of light being shed on the things that we now know as UX. Those degrees started to come along more around 2002, 2003 and, and later for the most part. And today we're still lacking when it comes to formal education in these arenas. And one reason is because a lot of people who are who have engaged in establishing educational programs for UX related degrees were doing so where they knew and they understood what to do with academia, but they didn't know anything about UX. So when that happens, the pedagogy suffers the same way that I talked about in the last series about how the boot camps lacked pedagogical experience in general. They just lack how to truly educate people. And so the, the program suffered. There's actually a little bit of that going on in higher learning as well, where you have people that these people do know pedagogy and they do understand academia and they do understand the science associated with education, but they don't have the expertise. They don't have the subject matter experts and they don't have the expertise when it comes to UX. So things still fall short. And that's why we run into problems today because some people, quite frankly, in academia are so arrogant that they don't know what they don't know. And when you don't know what you don't know and you still set out to do something, 
that's still going to cause the people who partake to become victimized. So we, we need to know and we need to understand that today. If, you're, if you've decided that you want to get a little, little digression here, if you've decided that you want to step forward and you want to get a degree in higher learning when it comes to UX, you have to vet out those resources because all of them are not great. I talked recently on, on another episode about one school that blatantly says on their page for the program for the UX master's degree, it blatantly says that you need to become a unicorn in order to succeed, to achieve success, even though there are a bunch of us out here who have achieved success and are not unicorns. It's not necessary, but they were very bold about that. It's impossible that they have UX people that are supporting the establishment, the maintenance, the building of that program who are sharing what's known to be true. Forget about your own personal testimony. Forget about your own personal experience. This is academia. Academia is is reliant upon the gathering of data and validating things ahead of time. So that's really sad that you're going to charge somebody what you're going to charge them and the whole premise, the whole foundation is bad. So anyway, so much for that commercial. I'm just, again, as always, I want to help people. I want you to be your absolute best. So that's why we do this. So as we go down this little historical track, the UX starts to become more mainstream to the point where people have UX in their titles somewhere around 2005 to 2009. It starts to become a normal thing. The evolution is continuing. Things are expanding. Knowledge sharing is continuing. There are a lot of books now, dependable, trustworthy books. Many of those books are still uh, very sound today. You can tap into the writings of Alan Cooper. You can tap into the writings of Jacob Nielsen. Jacob Nielsen actually wrote some books that people don't even don't even know about. He wrote a book about usability engineering. Go back and find that and tap into it. The information that's there is still valid today. This is really, really something to see. The the Don Norman books, your Kelly Goto, your your Jesse James Garrett, Nathan Shedroth, Susan Weinshank. People have have written dynamic tomes that are critical for us to tap into because the information is still reliable. It's still valuable. Good UX content has a long shelf life. Not like a lot of today's books where a lot of people frankly are writing books just to be heard. They, they're not experts in, in the, on the topic that they're writing about. They just write something and somebody's willing to publish them because a lot of folks just are willing to put something out as long as it's going to make a buck. They don't care about the long-term effects, how it has impact upon the discipline, how it has impact upon practitioners. They just want to make a buck. So the the ethics are gone out the window. And if we want the discipline to thrive, we have to be concerned about the ethical impact. So just keep that in mind as well. So UX is coming along. We come along into about 2011, 2012, People are starting to write articles talking about how great the discipline of UX is and how this is a position you want to go into. It's one of the top up, up and coming uh, job markets, one of the top upcoming career moves that a person can make. And people are like, wow, really? I want to go after that. The salary reports start to come out and people say, wow, you can make that much money doing this? Hmm. 
What can I do to get involved in that? And it's about that time that the boot camps emerge, 2012, 2013. The boot camps emerge, people behind some of these, they don't know anything about UX, so you've got that bad, <laughs> you've got that bad um, uh, ingredient again, where people who don't know about UX are getting involved in establishing UX education that you can't have that folks. You can't do that and come up with a good program. The people who do it must know about UX, the people who are involved. You can have people who don't, but you got to have some people that do that are involved who really know it. Not people who just read some articles and, and think they know something that that's not how this thing works. It's around 2012, 2013 that things start to really go awry. I personally noticed it. I started calling out what was going on. People said that I was crazy for talking about it. They said, that's nothing. Don't listen to him. Ignore him, whatever the case might be, uh, which is commonplace because people, when you talk about, when you call out something as being inaccurate or things of that nature, everybody who has a stake in that game or everybody who just wants to poo-poo things off will always discount that thing. I think I said before that I spoke at an event in 2014 where I was supposed to talk about the 10 things that we learned in 2013. And number one on my list was the rise of the UX poser. And there were about 100 to 120 people at this event and the place erupted in laughter Nobody took what I was saying seriously, at least nobody that I knew of. Nobody came to me and told me that they took it seriously. But in 2021, we found out that exactly what I said that day has now happened. And as we fast forward and we start to look at what's happened from 2012 to 2021, folks, we are now in a full-blown cycle of UX Dysfunction, And I'm going to go through each one of those contributing elements to illustrate what I mean by that. And then at the end of this two or three weeks, whatever it is, then I'll talk about what we have to do to overcome it. And, and I'll sort of give you a little bit of the end from the beginning. I talked in a recent episode about what I call the UX cycle of excellence. It is the direct opposite of the cycle of UX dysfunction. Step one was that if you wanted to, to achieve excellence in UX, you had to properly define what the discipline is. You had to define, you had to understand what UX really is. A lot of people have missed that entirely. A lot of practitioners today, they've missed it. When you miss that, you can have a title, you can have the job, you can think you're doing the work, If but if you do not properly define what UX is, you are not going to get anywhere, not of a truth. And you can cost your organization millions of dollars in the process for not having done it. Step two, you have to embrace the foundational tenets, the base things that help make UX is what it is, the things that make up UX. They must be embraced. You can't embrace some of these newfangled things, some of these rehashed things, things where people are rebranding old aspects of UX and act trying to get people to think that they've come up with something new and they really haven't. That's not ethical. You can't do that and achieve excellence. Step three, evaluate your current state. Where are you today when it comes to UX, which lends us to step four, identify your own knowledge and skill gaps. 
areas where you need to get better. Step five, then you need to start building towards excellence. Once you realize where you are and you identify the knowledge and skill gaps, get to work. Get to work on filling them. Steps six and seven, pretty straightforward. Commit to personal maintenance. Make sure that you're always in the business of of being your absolute best. Every time you discover a skill gap, you launch into the business of, of filling it with something that's appropriate, not filling it with anything. And there's a lot of, of, of anything, quote unquote, that you could fill the gaps with. There's a lot of misinformation. It's everywhere. We've talked about that on another podcast. And then you have to make sure that you're patient with yourself because nobody can achieve UX excellence overnight. And then once you achieve it, you have to go through steps three through seven, revisiting step one and two when necessary to make sure you're defining things properly and that you're embracing the right things, that you're not letting something slither into your, your regular maintenance of who you are as a UX professional. You keep going through steps three through seven and you keep building. That's how we achieve excellence. That's how I have to achieve excellence. We all have to do the same things. But you can't ignore these things and think you're going to achieve excellence. And you can't just have a UX title. You can't just graduate from some supposed class. You can't get what you think is is something that's going to work as a certification. And who said that the certification program did it right? Because many of them do not. And they actually trick people into thinking that they've achieved something. That, That equates to nothing more than toxic positivity. So we can't just... Imagine that we're getting things right today. We actually have to do these things correctly. And in wrapping up today, and this is easily going to be three weeks, in wrapping up today, one of the things I, I think we need to make sure we're understanding is that we, we need to understand how large the world of UX really is. A lot of people just limit it to their experiences. But if there's something going on in UX that's beyond what you have experienced, as an individual, no matter where you are, that's what I'm getting at. It's large. A lot of newer UX folks say, oh, all the positions out here are just focused on, they just want to hire senior people. The world of UX is bigger than that. And there are a lot of entry-level positions, but because the world is so large, you can't limit yourself to viewing things just based on what you've experienced. That's why it's important to be connected to senior UXers so it can help to expand your vision. That's why it's important to go to meetups as much as you can because meetups, folks, are dangerous. Meetups are so dangerous. I went to a meetup recently, got to share this story, where someone was talking about me and they said, yeah, you know, when Darren does his podcast, the more he talks about it, the more confident he gets. And I was thinking to myself, who is this person who decides to tell people what I'm thinking. And I wasn't going to disrupt the event and and say that this person was off their rocker. I think the, the look on my face pretty much told the story more than anything else. I don't gain confidence by talking on my podcast. I'm doing this as a service. I'm doing it because I love the discipline. I'm doing it because I like to help people. I, I'm doing it because education is a passion for me. I'm doing it for a bunch of reasons. I'm not doing this to promote myself and I'm surely not doing it to build confidence. I'm confident before I open my mouth. I'm confident when I'm quiet. 
I thought that was really sad. And that that's part of what I experienced. I personally, I avoid a lot of meetups because I found that a lot of really toxic, terrible misinformation just flies and people don't want to be the one who corrects folks. So they just let it happen. And the juniors don't know enough to say that that's, that's goofy. And a lot of other people don't want to get into any conflict. And so people get away with saying crazy things. But even though those kinds of things happen, there are some meetups that you can connect with. And, and it's invaluable because it'll broaden your perspective. You just have to learn to develop a filter. So when somebody says something ridiculous that you can know to just let that slide down your sleeve so to speak. But again, folks, the world of UX is extremely large. Don't limit how you're perceiving it. Uh, because if you limit how you're perceiving it, it can actually jade your thinking and it can hinder your growth. Know that there's something out there worth tapping into. There's someone out there worth connect connecting to. There is a job out there for you. If you're qualified, Keep that in mind. And we're always pressing to be more and more qualified. And that makes us more marketable. But at any rate, I could go on and on in this first installment of the cycle of UX dysfunction. I'm going to stop there. I think this is a good start stopping point, And we're going to build on this next week. So I uh, hate to stop right now, but got to do it, folks. We can't make these too long. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, that's it for today. We got to sign off. This is the host of The World of UX, signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.